Good morning. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. Let's uh, pause for a moment of silence and uh, for spiritual preparation using 1 John 1 9, which says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful indeed where we can assemble together and study your word. Pray now if that uh, if there's anything vying for our attention that we would lay those aside for the, the moment so that we can focus on thee and focus on thy word. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When does three become four? Add one. Well, we're going to look at our passage from Psalms 133 that has three verses, but I'm going to bring out four points. Three verses with four points. Psalms 133. Which says the following. Psalms 133, beginning with verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So now I'd like to give you four points from the three verses. Notice, for example, in verse 1, the focus here is in unity. Unity in God's family, really. Verse 1, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to to dwell together in unity. Maybe another word for unity is harmony. Unity, harmony. I want you to look at verse 2. Second point, it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. Anointing the oil is the idea of oil. It symbolizes consecration and blessing. It may represent the Holy Spirit's anointing, signifying God's presence and favor. So it's this anointing with oil, symbolizing his consecration and blessing. So that's verse 2. Please look at verse 3. Psalms 133, verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So the dew of Hermon is from the Mount Hermon descending on Mount Zion, which signifies divine refreshment and abundance, highlighting God's blessings flowing down upon a united community. A united community, uh, harmony. It's a poetic metaphor. And Mount Hermon is located in northern part of Israel and it's known for its abundant dew. 
And in the context of this verse, the dew of Hermon symbolizes the refreshing and abundant blessings that come when people dwell together in harmony and unity. And lastly, we have this commanded blessing. The concluding verse underscores that God commands His blessing where there's unity emphasizing in divine favor and life that result from believers dwelling together in harmony. Again, that's found in verse 3. So that's how you get 4 from 3 when you look closely at Psalms 133. So now I'd like to invite uh, Deacon Bill. As you know, as you know, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. This morning we're going to do something a little different. From this point forward we're also going to be looking at something for the rest of the year, maybe a little longer. If you have your notes... Please join me by looking at it. We're going to talk about this first. We've been going over phase two basics. And the basic series there was on focused on sanctification, discipleship, ambassadorship, abiding, walking, all of those good terms. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit. And this time what I'm going to do is show you how in Corinthians, discipleship is also found there. And we're going to trek through the book and see, we're going to basically reverse engineer the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to extrapolate, or in theological terms, it's called exegesis. We're going to draw out from the text and see what's there so that we can learn how to utilize 1 Corinthians in our own personal life. Because it's loaded with discipleship, we're going to see. So if you have your notes, let's read a few things first before we go into the notes here. And I apologize for those online. I realize font 12 is not really large enough for those who are watching on Zoomland. So I will read it for those online and for those of us who are here. Point number one, this is some basic background information with regards to 1 Corinthians. We're looking at number one. Corinth was a prominent city in ancient Greece. Situated on an isthmus between two seas, making it important for trade and defense. The two seas is Aegean and Ionian. The two seas. Aegean, A-E-G-E-A-N, and Ionian Sea. I-O-N-I-A-N. The two seas. That's where Corinth was situated and located. Number two, despite its prosperity, 
Corinth had a reputation for immorality, leading to the creation of a new Greek word linked to living immorally like a Corinthian. How would you like to be known for that? A new word created because of you or your church. The word is Corinthiazomai. Corinthiazomai. That's the new word that was coined because of its excess immoral behavior. What is NCBC known for? I wonder if there's going to be a term known linked to NCBC. Committed? That would be nice. Number three. Paul visited Corinth during his second missionary journey. Working as a tent maker with Aquila and Priscilla to support himself while preaching the gospel. Number four. Initially, preaching in the synagogue, Paul later focused on sharing his message with the Gentiles. Those who are not Jewish. Leading to the establishment of a church in Corinth consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. Number five, by way of background information. Over time, opposition to Paul grew in Corinth. And charges were brought against him by the unbelieving Jews. Although the Roman proconsul refused to intervene in the religious dispute. Number six, Paul maintained contact with the Corinthian church through letters and messengers, providing them with guidance and instruction. Seven, his letters, including 1st and 2nd Corinthians, were intended to address various issues and concerns within the church in Corinth. Next page, please. Out of chapter 1, there's only one verse that relates to a call to worship. One verse. Let's see, in chapter 1, let me, how many verses are in chapter 1? Thirty-one? Did I hear thirty-one? Thirty-one verses, and out of the thirty-one verses in chapter 1, one has the sense of a call to worship. In other words, this is what you must do. It's not an imperative, but it's something that's hinted in the verse itself, and we'll see in just a moment. In fact, turn to your notes. The verb plead, I plead, comes from the Greek word parakaleo, which simply means exhort, implore, or urge. So the verse says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak what? The same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. You see that? So now, looking at the the parsing of the verb, I plead is a parakaleo, which means to exert, implore, or urge. It's called a PAI, which means it's a present tense, active voice, indicative mood. 
Well, what's that mean? Present tense is ongoing action. Active voice refers to the brothers and sisters. Indicative mood is a straightforward expression of fact. A simple way of looking at the indicative mood is it indicates something. Okay? Now, right below that, I put something in Koine English. How's that? Koine English. Greek is Koine Greek. English is Koine English, right? So, just to keep it simple, it means, believers, I urge you to pursue unity in, in same mind and purpose within the body of Christ. So you can see just within the verse, the call here, the call to action is what? What, what would you say in verse one? What's the call to action here? To be one, to be unified, one mind, one thinking, pursuing the same direction. And Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, which is considered a the most immoral, sinful church of all. In fact, some say today it still wins, takes first place. It was very immoral. Sins that they did were not even mentioned to the gent. They couldn't even Gentiles wouldn't even mention it. It's it's amazing. And we're going to see that as we move through the book. But this is for starters, verse 10. I plead with you, be of the same mind, pursue unity and purpose within the body of Christ. We can learn from this. We can absorb this and make application to this in our own local church. So now, what I'd like to do is, instead of giving you an outline of the book, I'd like to give a summary of each chapter so that we know where we're going with this. Number one, unity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Let's turn there really quickly, just so that we can see. Yes, sir. Oh. Well, that's actually... Oh, wait. I think you're right. Oh. See? I need help. Thank you, Scott. So, we're looking at number one. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And here I put unity in Christ. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the same, under the cloud, all passed through the sea, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud of the sea. Oh, I'm... I'm not reading the right verse. Sorry. 110. All right, let's do this right. Verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you and that you be 
perfectly joined together in the same mind, same judgment. That's our verse that we parsed here. But we're looking at a summary of each chapter just so we have a sense of where the book is going, where we're going to go with our study. So, 1 Corinthians 1.10, unity in Christ. Chapter 2, or point 2, 1 Corinthians 2.12. Let's look at 2.12. And in here I put dependence on the Holy Spirit. So point number 1 is unity in Christ. Point number 2, dependence on the Holy Spirit. 2.12. Says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You guys see that? Please notice in verse 12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, referring to God the Holy Spirit. And here's the reason why. That we might know the things that have been what? Really given to us by God. So if we don't have the Holy Spirit, there's no way we're going to ever know that. We will never know what God has bestowed upon us or given to us as a result of faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So it's through the Holy Spirit, according to 12, He's given us the Holy Spirit that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. So we would never know that without the Spirit of God. Now, what do you think is happening with those who are unregenerate? Do they have things given to them by God? Let's think for a moment. Do the unregenerate have things given to them by God? Like such as? Rain. Logistics, did you say, Judy? The air they breathe. Every good thing comes from God. What other good things do they have? Air, water, food, family, job, that's right. So if you take what Paul says literally here, and I know we do, we're given the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. So apart from the Holy Spirit, we would not know the blessings that come from God. Is that not true today? The unregenerate, world, the unregenerate world do not even know what they have and potentially have, but they resist. They don't care about anything else. They, yes, they might know that they have oxygen, but who, they, who do they attribute that to? The oxygen comes from air, nature, Mother God, right? They attribute the good things from someone other than God himself. Oh, you know what? Cross my fingers. Good luck. Have you ever heard that before? They're attributing those things to luck, mother nature, everything else except God. Why? The scripture says that they do not know because they do not have the Holy Spirit. It properly rendered, it says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, God the Holy Spirit, 
so that we might know the things that we have been freely given. We go to work, we come home, we've been safe, even though there's traffic, we attribute that to God's grace. What about the unbelieving world? They say, well, you know, I'm a superb driver. I'm a, I could have been a race car driver if I wanted to. It's all about me. The arrows go this way. Instead of upwards giving credit to God, they give credit to who? Themselves. Just this one verse is crystal clear. We understand that all good things come from God, not because the verse says it, but because of what this verse says. It's because the spirit that we have received, not the spirit of the world, the spirit that comes from God, God the Holy Spirit so that we might know these things. That's chapter 2. It's building unity in Christ, dependence on the Holy Spirit. Number 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Notice what it says slowly. I planted, I initiated, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. God gave the increase. I put here spiritual growth, number three, point number three. Point number three says, discipleship emphasizes continuous spiritual growth, where followers actively engage in the process of maturing in their faith. But in the process, Bill plants, David comes along and waters. It's part of the process. What do we call that? Spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. That's part of discipleship. That's part of phase two. Hopefully you're seeing. Unity, dependence on the Holy Spirit, growth. That comes through advancing. That comes through Cooperation, that comes to verse one, verse 10 of chapter 1. Coming together, pleading in one mind, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, pursue unity in the same mind and purpose within the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ here. So when there's unity among the church family, we can depend on the Holy Spirit. Why can't we do it now? Because if we're not in unity, what do we call that according to Scripture? What if we're not in unity? What do we call that? What's happening? Discord. Discord. What happens to the Holy Spirit? Quench, Scott. Quench, grieved. So what happens then corporately as a church? If there's discord within the church family, what happens to us? What's that, Judy? Separation from empowerment, Debbie? No horsepower. No horsepower. If there's one or two where there's discord, we all are affected. Doesn't Paul say that in 1 Corinthians? We're going to see that later on. We're different parts of the body. So if there's someone hurting, someone, someone joyful, we rejoice with the one who rejoices, we grieve with the one who grieves. Isn't that part of unity? Isn't that a part of 
Paul's parakaleo, I'm urging you, I'm exhorting you to what? Be of one mind so that we can have dependence upon the Holy Spirit, we can have spiritual growth, and number four, we can be faithful stewards. Faithful stewards. Watch in 3.6. Oh, 1 Corinthians 3.6. Okay, this is... Four two. Can you get my other glasses? I think this is what's. One second here. I think I'm. Yes, four two, please. 1 Corinthians 4.2, for those on Zoom, we're going to read that and you guys can hear as well. This is under faithful stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says the following. Moreover, it is required in stewards. What's a steward? Are they the ones who fly on the airplane? Steward? A steward is a manager. A manager. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful, trustworthy. We're all stewards of what God has given to us. But please note at the very last, the last word in verse two, they must be found faithful. Faithful. A steward must be faithful. So let's roll this one through, one through four. Unity, dependence on the Holy Spirit, spiritual growth, also known as spiritual advance. And four, be a faithful manager, faithful steward, or stewardship. Disciples, number four, are entrusted with the mysteries of God and are responsible for faithful stewardship of these truths. Of these truths. Each one of these is building from chapter, well, from Corinthians. First Corinthians, okay? This is a summary of each chapter. So number five. Let's look at First Corinthians chapter five, verse eleven. First Corinthians chapter five, verse eleven. Notice what it says here. But now I have written to you. Who is he speaking to? Corinthian church, right? I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Let me read that in another translation. So that we get the force of what is being said here. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Please listen carefully. I meant that you are not to associate 
with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. That's another way of rendering 1 Corinthians 5.11. So, when you look at the notes, point number five, those online, I'm going to read it. Those on, uh, Number five, moral purity. I put here, discipleship involves a commitment to moral purity, avoiding association with persistent sin, and striving to live in accordance with God's standards. That's all a part of phase two. Number one, unity. Number two, dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Number three, growth. Spiritual growth, spiritual advance. Number four, faithful managers. Faithful managers. Number five, moral purity. Does this sound like a good book to look at? Through, uh, for discipleship or phase two? Oh yeah. Remember what we've read in James? The person who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. And if you sin on purpose, that's sin of commission, sin of commission versus sin of omission. You're, you're sinning one way or the other, whether you know it or not. And if you miss the bullseye, you're, you grieve the Spirit of God. So what happens after that? You have no horsepower. You have no horsepower. Are we guilty? Yes, we are. From time to time, we are. So luckily, we have 1 John 1, 9, and we also have 1 John 1, 6, I believe, where it talks about the blood of Christ. Remember that? We looked at that last week. Was it last week that we looked at that? Turn there really quickly, just... So that we can make sure we have uh, grace here. Because when we sin and we don't recall or we don't know it for whatever reason, I want to give us some confidence here. This is the grace of God. Look at what it says in 1 John 1, 8. Verse 7, sorry. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Who's He referring to? God. So not only is God light, He is in the light. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, meaning we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that fantastic? What is he saying here? Basically, as you're walking in the light, as he is in the light, as you're advancing in truth as a way of life, you're doing your best to abide and cooperate with Bible doctrine or God's word. You're walking in the light. In the back, you have the blood of Christ cleansing you. God's blood, God the Son's blood is cleansing us as we're walking to the best of our ability, exposed to the Word and living out the Word. Now, when when the Holy Spirit brings it to remember it, yes, 
we confess, right? But if let's just let's just say we don't know it at the moment, the blood of Christ is cleansing us so that we can have fellowship with Him. Otherwise, boom, we're goners. So the beauty of First John reminds us that yeah, we had we have an advocate, but we also have the blood of Christ cleansing us when we're walking in the light. What is the light? Truth, God's word. So as we're coming to church, as we're reading our, our book, Bibles during Bible class, and we're studying it, we're walking in the light as He is in the light. Guess what's happening? The blood of Christ is cleansing us. So that, let's just say, now i got to use First John one night. I'll just put it here. Not sure why this... Anyways, that's working. You can put it on the table. So as we're walking in light, in the light, which is the Word of God, applying His Word, walking where He is, where is He found? In His Word. The blood of Christ is cleansing us. So that, let's just say, as I exit class, I go home and then I have some kind of evil thought. And I don't realize that I'm having this evil thought. Well, guess what? The blood of Christ is cleansing me. I'm covered. That's the insurance. So that I can have fellowship with Him. My relationship is never, ever, ever tampered with. Why? We have an advocate. Now, when the Holy Spirit... Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the idea here is that when we don't confess the sin, we're still okay. We're still going to remain in... Our relationship is not affected because the blood of Christ is cleansing us. The fellowship is affected, but the relationship is not lost. I think that's the backup of the blood of Christ. See, So, thanks for the question. So, um, I know that's... I'm planning to do like, I'm thinking of doing like an article for our church website. And I think I'm going to develop that a little bit more. Because some people, I think um, it was Everett last week, right? What? Does that mean confess, confess, confess? I'll be spending all day, every second, confess, confess, 1 John 1 9, 1 John 1 9, 1 John 1 9. And I think I want to delve into that and um, pick it, uh, needle it through a little bit and Help us understand that. Help me understand it a little bit more. So number five, pure, moral purity. So let again, one is unity in Christ. That is the exhortation. That's the call to action in chapter 1, verse 10. Dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. That's one of our spiritual assets as a result of faith alone in Christ alone. And it's marked by reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Discipleship, that is. Number three, we're told to grow. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 6. Faithful stewards. A steward is a manager, really. We're supposed to be faithful with what we have. Moral purity. We have to do our best in staying pure. Morally pure. So, that's clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. So, turn the page and now looking at number 6. Number 6. We're now talking about conflict resolution. 
within the assembly. Remember, we're talking about the church, the Corinthian church. But by way of um, continuity, it applies to us as well. Conflict resolution. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verse 7. 1 Corinthians says the following. But brother goes to law against brother. Now therefore, verse 7, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept what? Wrong. Why do you not rather let yourselves be? That's kind of hard, isn't it? Be honest, that is a difficult one. Brother goes to law against brother and that... Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? So the two things that Paul is saying here to the Corinthian church, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Why not rather accept wrong? So this is where we confess our sin, right? First John 1 John 1.9. We don't want to accept wrong. We don't want to let ourselves be cheated. Does anybody here say, oh, I'll do that? It's not easy to be wrong or to be cheated. But Paul says, why not? Why not? So the point here in point number six that I put is disciples are called to resolve conflicts with humility. Humility, seeking reconciliation and demonstrating the peace that comes from what? Following Christ. Following Christ. So that can only come when we follow what Paul says. Just accept wrong. Just be cheated. It's not easy, but I believe that's the essence of what Jesus Christ would have done. Is that not true? When he was on the cross, what did he say to his father? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Sometimes it's easier said than done. But you want to know what discipleship looks like? You want to know what it looks like phase two? You want to know what it looks like to have power, horsepower, to execute the plan of God? Well, conflict resolution is where it's at. Within the church assembly... Paul strikes us at the core by by saying, why don't you accept wrong? Why don't you just let yourselves be cheated? But he's saying this in one blanket statement to them all. So if someone is wrong, Paul is saying, both of you, why don't you accept being wrong? Why don't you accept being cheated? If he won't do this, if he won't accept that, let it go. Why? That's part of grace. That's what God has done for you and for me. Don't you see it, Corinthian church? Conflict resolution. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did he wait for us 
to change? Did he wait for us to say, well, Lord, I'm sorry? Not even. While we were still sinners, Christ came out and died for us. At the right time, Christ came 2,000 years ago so that we would be covered. We would be a part of the church age. That is an awesome privilege. Did you not know that? To be a part of the church age, that means you and I have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit indwelling us like no one else before. No one in the dispensation of the law ever experienced that. No one in the dispensation of the millennium will experience that. No one during the dispensation of the tribulation will ever, ever experience that either. Only us. Only us. So number six, conflict resolution. Paul wants the Corinthian church and us to recognize we're called to resolve conflicts. We don't ignore it. We do something about it. But here's the thing. We have to exercise humility, seeking the reconciliation and demonstrating the peace that comes from following God the Son. See, if we don't follow God the Son's pattern and lifestyle and prototype, His example, we can't do this. There's no way we can. God the Holy Spirit will only come and operate in our lives when we take this and attempt to apply it. When we take the Word of God and attempt to apply it. We can't do this on our own strength. But when we look at it and say, okay, conflict resolution, I'm going to try. You take one step towards the, the person who you are at odds with, God the Holy Spirit will empower you to take the next step. He will give you the peace and the zipper to close your lips so that you won't cuss the person out and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give it my best. I know it's wrong. I know this is in my under normal circumstances, normal circumstances. I'd let him have it. Double barrel. But you know what? Lord, I'm trying to do this as a representative of you. Thank you for giving me the ability through God, the Holy Spirit. He gives me the enablement. Thank you. It's hard, Lord, but you know what? As I start with my mind and I go in the direction, okay, Lord, I want to do this, not because I want to show him that I'm better than him, but because I know that this is what you would have me to do based on what we've studied today. So I thank you that the Holy Spirit was given to me so that I might know those good things, 1 Corinthians 2, coupled with the rest of this. So I might be able to do this now, Father, thank you. We are to be light and salt, not only in the world, but amongst each other. We're to do good to those, especially of the family, household of faith. You remember that? Turn to Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10 David, do you have it? You guys get that? What does that mean? There's a lot here. Just in the one verse. Right? Therefore, as we have opportunity, what's that mean? As we're able to. 
as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Who's all? Everybody. Neighbors, co-workers, family members, even the in-laws. To all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Who's part of the household of faith? Aaron, Marty, Everett, Judy, Debbie, Jonathan, Jenny, Jerry, Scott, Rick, Bill, David, Laura, Pastor Dan, Alvin, Daisy, Corrine, Callie, Steve, Bill, Chison, Larry. And maybe me too, right? We're all a part of the household of faith. And what did we just see? As we have opportunity to those, let us, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should be especially protective of this right here. Why? Because we need each other. When we go out there, we get beat up big time. We get hit hard. How do I know Jesus is real? And you hear all these things and then you get into squabbles with family and there's tension left and right. We need each other. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of saints. Why? There's a synergy that takes place, a dynamic that takes place when we're together. That's a stability that comes from the body of believers united together in unity. That was the first exhortation. That was the first call to action from chapter 1. And where are we now? We are in chapter 7. Well, we looked at conflict resolution. So now we're going to look at chapter 7. See, I got my glasses on this time. So let's go to chapter 7. But Galatians 6 reminds us we should be looking out for each other. To everyone, but especially VIP, the local church, the church family. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're back to 1 Corinthians now. Chapter 7, this is point number 7 that I have here as a summary. Chapter 7, faithful in, faithful living in various circumstances. Look at 7, 17. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 of point number 7. It says the following, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk And so I ordain in all churches. So the idea here in in the point here of seven is disciples navigate various life circumstances with faithfulness, recognizing and following God's call in every situation. Every situation as per 717. He has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one. So let him walk. Let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So we're told to be, be select, be faithful in the various life circumstances to the best of our ability. And I believe that becomes more doable as we build from chapter one 
all the way down to chapter 6. As we're aligning our thoughts, our minds with his word, we also know, call this divine viewpoint. Divine viewpoint, discipleship, ambassadorship, walking, abiding, all of those are good terms for the, for the chapters that we looking, are looking at here. So now, in chapter 8, verse 9, that's point number 8. Consideration of others. Again, what I've done is I've gone through each chapter and I've distilled it to the, its essence to show where phase two pops and comes to life. Look at verse, chapter eight, verse nine. Eight, verse nine. Self-discipline and sacrifice. I mean, consideration of others, for others. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are what? So what do you get? What's the sense here? Consideration for others. Put others before yourself. Put others before yourself. Let me read it again. But beware, lest somehow this liberty, what's another word for liberty? Freedom. Be careful, lest somehow this freedom of yours becomes a stumbling stumbling block to those who are weak. So what can you get out of that? What's the sense that you're getting from that? You see something, Everett? Same growth? Okay. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Okay. Anything else here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. For the weaker person. Right. Judy. Mm-hmm. Personal love. Very good. It's impersonal love, personal love. Impersonal love is to those who you don't even know. So you can execute that love, not because you know them, not because you love them, because you don't know them, and it's the virtue that's stored in who? You. You're only able to extend impersonal love. You don't want to cause them to stumble because of the virtue that's stored up in you, a.k.a. the doctrine that's stored up in you, the Word of God that's stored up in you. So if you're going to cause someone to stumble, look at what it says. 
Beware lest someone, somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. If you back up, look at verse 8 to give a little context. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat or we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So there's this sense of if you're having difficulty with those who eat a certain food, vegetarians, meat eaters, it's probably not a good idea to eat meat in front of a vegetarian, especially if it could cause them to stumble. That's what Paul argues in different places of the Bible. But he doesn't want us to use our liberty to cause others to stumble. In other words, it's grace operation. If someone is stumbling because of what you do, back off. Put them first. Put them first. That's grace. And again, if you just listen closely to what it says here. Beware. Beware lest somehow this liberty or freedom of yours, which we have, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So if we are doing something that could cause a weaker brother to stumble, be careful. Be careful. Let's not take advantage of that. So now let's look at self-discipline and sacrifice. Self-discipline and sacrifice. And for that, I invite your, your attention to chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 27. I put here self-discipline and sacrifice. Listen to why I did that. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have, when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the idea here is self-discipline and sacrifice. Self-discipline and sacrifice. Disciplining his body, bringing it under subjection, under control, under con- Test lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Let me read it from another translation so that sometimes it makes it a little simpler to follow. 9.27 Another way of saying that verse is... I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. The idea of disciplining yourself, bringing it under subjection, that's 1 Corinthians 9.27. That's point number 9. Point number 10. Right. Focus, studying the scriptures, noticing what the doctrines and the word of God. So that requires discipline, a commitment to that. Correct. From rewards, eternal rewards. So you're not studying and showing yourself to prove. So you're not being able to shore up rewards in the end. You'll be disqualified. You don't lose salvation. The only thing you can lose 
as a believer in Christ are rewards. Once saved, always saved, 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 saved. You're never going to disqualify yourself for that. You're, once you're saved, you can't unsave yourself. The only thing in the life of the believer that you can get disqualified from is rewards. It's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Hopefully we get the gold, silver, precious stones, not the wood, hay, and stubble. So we can get disqualified when our motives are not right. A host of things, you're operating under the energy of the flesh, not the energy of God, the Holy Spirit. So now, chapter 10. We're looking at point number 10, the summary of chapter 10, 14. I summarize this under idolatry and temptation, 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You can make anything an idol as long as you put that as a prior- priority and a primary focus in your life. So nothing should ever, ever come before your relationship with God. Nothing. Family, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. If you do, that's idolatry. Does that mean you can't love your family? Of course not. In fact, if you put God first, you're going to be able to put your family first in the truest sense. Because now as you follow God's word, you're going to be able to take care of your son, your daughter better than more, better than ever before because you're heeding the principles and the doctrines that come from the Word of God. Speak the truth in love. You see all the truths that will make you the better parent, the better spouse, the better friend as you make application to what? His Word. So as we move through 1 Corinthians, we're now at point number 10. We're told to avoid idolatry and temptation. And if we abide by this principle as found in 10.14, we're not grieving the Spirit. We're not quenching or dousing out the Spirit's power or enablement in us and through us. So now we're living phase two with great success and a forward movement. Forward movement. But if we are missing point one through ten, we are grieving the Spirit. We lose out on the rewards. We're not disciplining ourselves anymore because now we're focused on our feelings. We're focused on what am I going to get out of it? If I go to church today, it's supposed to rain. I was reading the weather report and it was supposed to rain hard, so maybe I shouldn't go to church today. Well, why don't you drive to church and see if it's raining that hard? The sacrifice that you make for, for church is... Phenomenal. When you prioritize God, Psalms 138.2, where you elevate God above all things as He elevated His Word above His name, you're on a, you're aligned with Him now. So it's best to prioritize Him. I'm not in any way su- suggesting you can't love anybody else. Of course you can. But God has to be preeminent first above all. Because when He is, guess who gets to answer prayers? When you pray, he does. Guess who gets to be faithful to Romans 8.28? What's Romans 8.28? What's that there? All things work together for good? I like to modify that because I, I think it's more powerful when you say God causes all things to work together for good. 
Because all things don't work together for good. You can tell an unregenerate person, hey man, all things are going to be okay anyways. That's not true. Because first of all, God's behind that promise. Second of all, it's contingent upon what? Love. God causes all things to work together for good to those who... So that is condition. That's a conditional promise. You can't just divvy that out to anybody. You can't just say, "Hey, hey, uh, Debbie, it's going to work out. Debbie, don't worry." You know. And if she's not loving God, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. What if she's in sin and God's disciplining her? Who am I to say what she's going to? I don't know. Am I going to pass judgment? Of course not. But that verse will not apply to her unless she's actively pursuing God in her own personal relationship. And if she is, then whatever I say is doesn't matter because God has promised to cause everything to work together in her life as she continues to actively love God to the best of her ability. So now when you're thinking about see point number 10, let's go to point number 11. We've got... An hour and a half left. Right, so, reverent, reverent worship and communion. Eleven twenty-six. I put this as a way of summary for this chapter. It's in twenty-six. <clears throat> for reverent worship and communion, I chose twenty-six. Of 11, chapter 11, verse 26. In the same manner, oh, I'm sorry, for verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Help me out. What's he saying here? We know that this is communion. I say this every month, right? What is he saying here in verse 26? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. What's going on here? Okay, prerequisite for everything we're doing. Very good. What else? 11.26. 11.26. What do we see? What's there? What's not there? I'll read it. Huh? Okay, looking back. So that's a re- exercising our memory. Right? As often as you do this, uh, 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You're declaring to everyone in the assembly the Lord's death. You're going back 2,000 years ago and you're proclaiming the Lord's death till he what? So you've got in the past truth 2,000 years ago the death of Christ rose on the third day. The past, now in the future. Till he comes. There's a spread right here. In the past, you're proclaiming his death till he comes. When's he going to come? Whenever he wants to. Not second advent. Rapture is next. There's two comings though. There's the rapture of the church, second advent, or second coming. Two dips. 
one dip for the rapture of the church, the second dip, we come with him to dip or to touch his feet on the ground to initiate what? The millennial kingdom. How long will that kingdom last? 1,000 years. Guess who gets to be there? Who are the players? The winners. Co-rulers, co-reigners. Though those are distinct. There's a slight difference between the two. We'll get to that in the future. Judy? We're focused on... We're focused on his death. I'm sorry? Sacrifice for our salvation, right. So, because he's including this bread and drink, this cup. So the bread represents his body, his cup represents his blood, which is related to the new covenant. Body, blood. So the body and blood goes back 2,000 years ago, And proclaiming this till he comes is future yet. We're talking about the past, remembering the past, and looking forward to the future. So when we're in class, we're like this. Okay, what did he do 2,000 years ago? Oh, propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God. So 2,000 years ago, we looked to the past, but we also look forward to the future. Memory for the past Hope in the future. Both requiring mental capability, capacity. Righteousness of God. That was satisfied? Yes. And justice. That's right. Yeah, you're right. But if you think about it, they're all interlocked anyways. Justice, righteousness, wrath, his satisfaction, all of that has to pass through the plan of God and he has to be appeased. It has to come under the the context of he was satisfied. Was he satisfied with the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes. All of it was satisfied. Basically, bottom line is God the Father was appeased. And if he was appeased, then we now have a Savior that we can trust. Right? So now, let's just... You know, we're, where did we stop? 1126, reverent worship and communion. And let's see, we've got only two more. So 12.7, I put this as unity and diversity of spiritual gifts. 12-7, 12-7. And we will finish soon. Let me just put this. Hmm? Oh, we have a few more. That's right. So why don't we stop here then? I think it's best to stop here because we still have a few more to go and it might take a little while. So I don't want to cause any of you to exercise first John one nine. Yes. Okay. 
Those online, if you want a copy of the notes here so that you can actually read it, uh, put it in the chat box and let us know, or the uh, our website, National Capital Bible Church, and our our contact box, and we will be sure to send a copy to you. Oh, they can't chat. Oh, email us to at National Capital Bible Church, and we'll be sure to get copy the notes to you, so you can follow us next week as well. Because we have a few more to wrap up, and this way you'll have a way to follow along. I apologize, the font is 12. I guess this is good for reading it on paper, but not well on Zoom, so I apologize for that. So having said that, let's close in the word of prayer, and then we'll conclude our class. Father, thank you as always for giving us the freedom to assemble together, to study and and, uh, show ourselves approved worship you in spirit and in truth. And we're grateful for the reminder that comes from 1 Corinthians itself that truly this is a book about phase two salvation. And and as we get into the nitty-gritty, I'm confident, Lord, that we'll be able to see things that maybe we haven't seen before so that we can make adjustments in our personal lives and reorient our thinking in a way that aligns with yours. Thank you, Father, for this time. Keep us all safe so that when we uh, head out for our own uh, our own respective homes, you, we will be able to arrive safely with no problems at all. We thank you and we love you and we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.